From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how the pandemic changes digital water strategy, Oprah Winfrey funds a food waste startup, how sustainability reshapes post-pandemic supply chains, and what will it take to get you back on the bus, literally. Take my seat, please, this week on 350. It's May 29th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as she does every week from Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. You know, I really liked uh, your uh, climate tech webcast this week, and I just thought, and then your Mm -hmm. newsletter, the Verge newsletter that you do, uh, well, every other week and sharing with Shauna Rappaport uh, about uh, this whole new world of climate tech. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what's going on there. (laughs) Well, it was kind of, it was one, you know, supposed to be a slow week, right? Because it's a holiday. It was a holiday in the U.S., uh, but we had two major things happen. Um, one was this, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it in, in a moment, but a major funding, $250 million for a, a climate tech company called Appeal. Uh, like I said, I'll save the details for a moment. But then also the announcement by Stripe uh, that it had picked four carbon removal projects to sort of address what it's calling its negative emissions mission, right? So they said they would spend a million dollars annually to help fund carbon removal projects. And lo and behold, they have made that investment. Um, so it's four projects. I don't know if you want me to tell you about them, but- Well, well uh, yeah, you can talk about it briefly, but I'm sort of curious. I mean, Stripe processes credit card payments or some other mm-hmm. financial services like that. Uh, Square, a lot of people know is a, is a competitor. Why are they doing this? Why them? Yeah. So I think many of the technology companies have kind of caught the fever from the bigger ones, right? The, the Googles and the Microsofts and, and, and so forth and, and Amazons that are spending money to try to address their, the carbon footprint of their cloud computing operations, right? Because di- as the economy goes digital, the, they realize that they need to bear responsibility for that. So part of it is, is from that um, sort of general mindset. But, but for me, the even I don't know, potentially cooler part of this is that Stripe is an online payments company. And one of the things that it realizes is this, and and it comes through um, in the blog that they wrote about these investments, it's really hard to figure out where to put your money. And there's not a lot of options. I mean, there's a lot of options, but not a lot of viable options. And I don't think they realized how hard it was going to be to to find projects to fund. Um, But well, as they were doing this, you know, and as they were kind of getting deeper into the criteria and so forth, they, one of their missions became to make it easier, to make it easier for them and, and for other companies. So the, the, the potentially uh, really impactful part of this is that they're going to go out and try to allow others to participate in these projects. So if you think about it, like, let's just hypothetically say that you're a, uh, an online merchant that uses the Stripe payment system. You could potentially in the future be able to add something to your um, your checkout 
cart for for your customers and and say, hey, you know what? Do you want to fund this carbon project? And you could make it simpler to uh, to have a company offer that to their customers and for them to participate as well. So for me, that was kind of the the aha behind the scenes. They're they're not saying it yet. They haven't they haven't provided any more details. But the the email I got back from on that particular note was very. Uh, very uh, coy, shall we yeah. say? Yeah, well, well, that would be really cool because you know figuring out where to uh, to buy offsets or invest money, for that matter, um, is hard in this because there's so many projects and some some of them are winners and some not. I guess it's like any other kind of investing. And so, someone who's vetted all of that and saying here's the here's the ones that are the most impactful. The and they potential. need the volume. They need the volume for the the money to the the costs to come down. Because if uh, you look at this, uh, if you look at the four projects, the the costs per ton are like wildly different. So um, the Climeworks one, I believe, is seven hundred and fifty dollars um, or something like that a ton. This company called Vesta Power that they're they're testing out um, that could be as as little as seventy five dollars. So it's just the the range of potential prices is is amazing and and part of their goal is to to help those prices come down. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more to talk about with offsets and carbon credits and renewable energy credits and I think, you know, we that, that world continues to grow and continues to also be more confusing. That feels like a job for journalists and maybe especially <laughs> green biz journalists. So I think uh, we, we, we need to dig into that more. But let's uh, right now dig into the Week in Review. Let's start off this week with a piece by one of our longtime uh, contributors, Terry Osi. If you don't know Terry, he's uh, been in Washington uh, in environmental I- issues for a long time, worked at the US EPA way, way back in the 90s or even the 80s, perhaps. And then he ran the uh, World Environment Center, which is a uh, organization of big companies looking to uh, basically uh, improve their impact uh, and collective impact uh, around sustainability. And he's been writing a, a whole series of articles now. And, and this one in particular this week was on how sustainability reshapes post-pandemic supply chains. Um, and, and what he basically says is that there there is a reshaping taking on, although it's also part of something that's been going on already. This is it's sort of like so many things, I guess, the pandemic is is exacerbating or accelerating things that were already taking place or starting to, what he calls the realignment of global supply chains, which he said was underway way before the pandemic began. But just an example of, of how this is, is, is changing. If you just look at what's happened with the PPE, the personal protection equipment and, and the masks and other things needed, medical equipment needed for this, uh, how the states, uh, you know, have jumped in and chartered airplanes from China, as, as Maryland Governor Larry Hogan did uh, from Korea. In his case, plane landed at uh, BWI, Baltimore, Washington International Airport, and was surrounded by National Guard and state police uh, uh, to prevent the federal government from absconding with the shipment. I mean, it's it's, it's almost the stuff from which movies. Uh, New England Patriots owner, you know, Robert Kraft, lent his own private plane to bring similarly stuff from China to Boston. Again, the Massachusetts National Guard escorted them to the state strategic stockpile. I mean, it's it's almost 
humorous, but it's obviously deadly serious. And but this is emblematic of what of how supply chains are changing when you look at the rising labor costs in China and throughout Asia, the the, the continuing quality control and, and risk problems around that, the complexity of supply chains and the the lack of visibility and control that so, so many companies you know have on their around their supply chains. Um, so I think this is this is just a really interesting area, and Terry, you know, brought a lot of it to life. Mm-hmm. And if, for me too, I, and I, I appreciated this piece because I, it is something I think a lot about uh, as a as our resident geek geeky tech person. And there's a lot of really interesting tools that are coming to play in order to enable this, right? So I wrote a couple of weeks ago about how different 3D printing technologies, or even just networks, supplier network information that's digitized can help a company flex. If you, I think flexibility, right, is one of the key words. Flex, flex where the, the products are coming from or where the components are going to, making them more regional in some institu- instances, but also making them more global when they, when they need to be. And so the, the flexibility, that, that's a sort of a clarion call that's happening right now. One of the points that he made that, I, that, that I'm, I'm still sorting through my head, which sounds intriguing, although it's almost a little bit encounter, counterintuitive if you think about sort of like if, what happens if, if one person gets, gets disrupted. But he talks about building longer term business relationships with few, fewer suppliers, right? So I don't know. I mean, like for me, that's like intellectually speaking. Yes, it makes sense if you're if you're working really well together and you and it's a close partner and so forth. But it almost seems like an eggs in one basket kind of problem. Um, well, well, but anyway, well, that uh, yeah. yeah. So when you put these things together, I mean, it, to just to build on what you're saying, the counterintuitiveness or the complexity. So regional supply chains, in other words, bringing them, uh, reshoring them, or or relocalizing some of these supply chains. Although they could be, you know, in Asia Pacific or other geographies, but also diversifying your supply chains so that if there's a hurricane or a, or a pandemic or something going on in one part of the world, you, you're not shut down. And then fewer suppliers, as you're saying, longer term business relationships with fewer suppliers. I mean, how do you do that? That's just a really complex puzzle. It's great. It's a great opportunity, though, for the, the companies that do it right. And I, I do I do appreciate how this was happening. I mean, this definitely has been happening. We've been talking about it Um and there's nothing like a, a, a crisis to make people really double down on. I mean, sometimes you can make decisions more, far more quickly and, and, and get the objections out of the way. So, well, well, let's move on to another complex problem, which is how do we get people back on the bus? And this is a piece we ran this week from, from uh, by Chuck Ray and Ben Holland, uh, two uh, experts in mobility at the Rocky Mountain Institute in Colorado. And just talking about this, again, complex uh, moment where, uh, you know, we can't have people going back into cars, but people don't want to get in a confined space with uh, a lot of other people. And, uh, you know, and is this moment the death of transit, at least as we've known it, or is is there some other outcome, a silver lining or some other technologies that are going to rise to the fore? Uh, I think this is it, it obviously, it's not just buses; it's subways um, as as well. But this is going to be a really interesting challenge to 
you know, get people, you know, yes, airplanes, I get that, but you don't have to go on airplanes we're learning. And we may not have to go on buses as much, but a lot of people do. A lot of people who can't work at home and who must go somewhere or who must, you know, if that's their main transportation to get shopping or education or health care, um, those are jobs. Uh, those are uh, cr critical. So how does this happen? How does this happen? And there are two different kinds of, I mean, I'm sure there are many different kinds of riders, but there's two predominant ones if you think about it. There's the choice riders, right? The people like my friends. I have several friends that work in Manhattan, and we were talking about this over the weekend. Um, two of them are, are going to be going back to work in the near future, and they're not really sure what to do. One of them has already been going in to do some essential construction management um, of projects, and he's been driving, and it's his choice, right? But then there's the people that have no choice. They don't have a car. Um, they need to get to their job at a certain shift time. So what they're talking about, I think what, what we'll probably see initially is much more flexible um, commuting hours, right? So it'll be incumbent upon the companies to stagger the, the shifts um, if, if, if you're talking about shift work or stagger the times that people are due into work and making them much more flexible if they're going to require them to come in at all. Another flattening um, of another curve. It, yeah, actually, yeah. If you think, uh, I didn't think about it that way, but totally. Um, and maybe changing the routes a little bit. Maybe a route becomes, uh, some, maybe unfortunately, maybe some routes are discontinued for a while to put more capacity and more, um, more times available on a, on a on a bus route that's that's used far more frequently. I don't know what you're about to do about trains. Um, New Jersey Transit's really facing a big crisis. I mean, every transit system is, of course, but the New Jersey Transit system in particular um, has been straining under the tunnel situation going into New York. Um, it shares with Amtrak, and so there's going to be a lot of of flexing that's going to need to happen there. Well, too, and adding so. to the complexity, and that seems to be the the key word for this this episode this week is complexity. Is is if you have all these other th priorities that are taking place around transit, around electrification, around bus rapid transit, where you're building high priority or bus priority lanes, um, as we're seeing in both New York and San Francisco, uh, here in Oakland as well. You know, how do you keep those things going? when the buses themselves are, uh, well, I hate to use this, but up in the air <laughs> in terms of overall ridership, you know, they don't answer these, these uh, questions, but they, you know, sort of talk about, you know, how does, uh, how do these issues align or compete? And mm -hmm. how does this all, you know, how do we think about also the silver lining we've seen out of this around uh, cleaner air and cleaner skies and, and, um, uh, you know, what we, the lower noise environments and, you know, how do we, do we want to go back to uh, those kind of polluting things? I mean, we may have to, um, but these are all part of the, part of these issues that come up. So I just, I just find this uh, one of so many fascinating topics that we're dealing with right now. But let's move on to something else that you wrote about this week, Heather, that's feels a little bit more like a happy story. <laughs> which is a food waste <laughs> startup uh, called Appeal, which you mentioned briefly before, that one of its investors is Oprah Winfrey. And now the question is, well, first of all, who is Appeal and Sciences? What are they doing? 
Uh, why is Oprah involved? And would this be a story if it wasn't for Oprah? Oh, yes, this would be a story, even if it wasn't for Oprah and Katy Perry, who is also an an investor as well. They are non-participating, right? So they don't, they're not, um, they're minority investors. But at the the same time, I think the the point being that um, they're locals, right? This company is in Santa Barbara. Appeal Sciences makes a uh, organic substance that is used to coat fruits and vegetables and extend the shelf life of same. So it is on avocados, it's on strawberries, it's on apples and so forth, uh, dozens of, of different uh, produce items. And their value proposition is that they can extend the shelf life like up to double for, for some things like avocados. Um, and it, it varies on, on the particular item. But um, that has a twofold effect of helping both the shelf life during transportation of food through the, the distribution system, so making sure it's fresher when it gets to the, the grocery stores, but also when it, once, it get, once it gets home, it doesn't spoil as quickly in your fruit basket on your table. So, um, what, so yeah. what is this coating? Is this something mm-hmm. that we'd want to eat or do we so, have to rub it yes. off? Or what, what so is it? it's edible. It's edible. So it's basically what they've done is they've taken the natural process of, the, of, of fruit and, and, and so forth, which they already excrete and create a coating that helps them um, retain their, you know, stop rotting more quickly, right? So that's, they already do this. What they're doing is they're supercharging that. Um, and they, they've taken this, this idea, they created a substance that can be sprayed onto this. It's water sol- soluble and it's edible. Um, so this goes on and it washes off. Uh, and so $250 million is a major amount of funding, especially when you consider the startups, um, uh, have, the funding has kind of dried up for a lot of startups, not for folks in the climate tech world, by the way, there's been plenty of funding events. Uh, there was an $80 million funding event for a company called Nature's Find and alternative protein. There's been a, a lot of alternative protein stuff funded in the last couple of weeks. But this, yeah, this particular startup um, is just fascinating to me because it's a, such a simple thing. Uh, and they are they are quite um, established. I mean, Kroger is using them. Um, they, they didn't list all of their customers out, but they've got the biggest food retailers in the U.S., in Germany, in Denmark. And they're out there really trying to make a dent in this, this problem. And I think it's a, a very... Yeah, it is an optimistic story. That's great. <laughs> I like. Well, I look forward yeah. to seeing more of that. Uh, appeal Sciences, a startup with appeal. One of our long-standing columnists at GreenBiz is Will Sarney, an internationally recognized thought leader on water strategy and innovation. Will and his team at Water Foundry advise private and public sector enterprises and NGOs on water strategy. He has authored numerous books and articles and presented on the value of water, innovations in digital water technology, the circular economy, and the energy water food nexus. One of Will's favorite topics is digital innovation. He believes that one big lesson from the COVID-19 pandemic is that digital water technologies are more important than ever to ensure access to water, sanitation, and hygiene. 
He joins me today to chat about the implications for corporate sustainability teams and water strategists. Will, hello. Heather, how are you? Great. It's, it's wonderful to have you back on Green Biz 350. You're a very frequent visitor and guest, so thank you for that. <laughs> I, I love it. Well, thank you. So first, give us some context. What sorts of digital water technologies will be important for corporate water strategy in the future? Sure. Uh, great question. So, you know, I use the term digital water uh, very broadly. You know, other colleagues use slightly different terminology, but I, I think we all agree that it's a suite of technologies that give the public and the private sector the ability to monitor water quantity and quality on a real-time basis and turn it into actionable information. And also uh, technologies that give you the ability to manage assets uh, proactively, essentially, uh, and also provide tools to uh, the workforce so they can do their job uh, better, more efficiently, more effectively, uh, remotely. And, and we know how important that is now, not just in the utility sector, but also uh, in the private sector where manufacturing needs to continue and uh, the workforce may not uh, be fully there, uh, you know, working at a manufacturing facility. So, you know, it, it, it really is acquiring data uh, and running analytics and making decisions uh, either reactively or proactively uh, through a set of uh, tools. So it's like software and different sensors and that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the ability to collect the data and analyze the data. So, uh, you need, you know, Internet of Things, you need devices that can collect the data, uh, and then you need a suite of uh, software applications that can turn that data set into actionable information and uh, give you the ability to make decisions uh, in advance of, uh, you know, let's say a treatment membrane failure or pipe failure, uh, whatever it may be, uh, in terms of your infrastructure. Now, as we were prepping for this conversation, you mentioned Nestle Waters as an example of a company that is using digital technologies to improve quality and access. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, you know, Nestle, Nestle Waters is interesting. Nestle Broadway is interesting also in that there's really this interesting intersection of their corporate commitment to the Alliance of Water Stewardship uh, certification and then how they're bringing technologies uh, into their manufacturing facilities to do better with the resources they have, in particular water, uh, within the framework of uh, AWS requirements uh, and performance and their, you know, overall corporate sustainability and water stewardship commitments. So, you know, they're working with a company called Aqua Assay uh, out of France, and it's a artificial intelligence uh, solution provider that gives Nestle Waters the ability to monitor water performance at their manufacturing facilities on a real-time basis and use AI analytics to drive efficiency as opposed to analog solutions and, and, and manual uh, tracking. So interesting to me, a very interesting intersection of uh, making a commitment to uh, Alliance for Water Stewardship uh, water stewardship very broadly, and then bringing in digital tools that help you achieve 
your goals that you've established? So a company that is studying sort of technology-enabled innovation very closely is Anheuser-Busch InBev, the, the beer maker. It's got the 100-plus accelerator that it's standing up. What intriguing water-related startups have you seen emerging from that effort? Great question. Uh, I, I find Anheuser-Busch uh, InBev uh, really interesting in that, you know, they're really one of the few multinationals that have stood up a accelerator program and, uh, you know, they, they've targeted a number of key challenges that they want to address and water is one of them. It's framed as uh, every single drop. And last year they had a, a, a digital uh, technology company spout that has developed real-time lead testing at the tap. And this year uh, they have a company called Jibe that's part of the cohort that I find really interesting in that what they do is they use satellite data coupled with on-the-ground sensors to monitor real-time water quality monitoring. And if you think about uh, you know, a, a food and beverage company uh, that is operating in watersheds around the world, uh, you know, the ability to understand water quality within those watersheds uh, is incredibly important. And doing it through satellite data acquisition and analytics uh, is an incredibly powerful tool compared to, uh, you know, a more manual approach where you're, you're actually sending people out in the field to collect the data and then analyze the data. So it's just interesting to me to see that, you know, Jive is part of the cohort this year and, you know, we'll see where it goes. It's interesting that Jive was also part of the TNC Techstar program last year. So quite a bit of interest in, in satellite data acquisition and analytics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is, that, is that an unusual solution? You know, there are a number of companies that are, are using satellite data in various ways. Uh, you know, Jive is unusual in terms of really focusing on, on water quality monitoring. So, you know, giving a stakeholder, whether it's, you know, a utility or a municipality or, uh, you know, a food and beverage company, the ability to, to really understand that real time, again, as opposed to the more manual approach. One of the digital technology solution sets that I find really interesting and really powerful is, is satellite data acquisition and, and analytics. Again, it gives you the ability to acquire data uh, in a in a very cost effective way, on a real time basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you spend a moment on Spout, the the first company that you mentioned? Yeah, Spout came out of a um, program based here in Denver, ten ten ten, which is ten wicked problems, ten entrepreneurs for ten days, and they they bring uh, those entrepreneurs in that don't have any background in a particular wicked problem category. So. Uh, a couple of years ago, they had a program focused on, I want to say, water and cities. And uh, one of the entrepreneurs, you know, had no background in water and looked at Flint as a as a problem that he wanted to solve. And uh, he spun up a, a company, Spout, uh, that is now working with uh, water utilities. They've got pilots with utilities uh, to get over that issue of, or address the issue of, you know, lead in drinking water. 
uh, and Spout was in last year's uh, 100 plus accelerator program also. But, I, you know, again, you know, companies like Jive, companies like Spout and, and others that are out there are really trying to solve this uh, market need for real time. It's, it's real time anything. And that is even more important now than it was really just two to three months ago. Why is that so? Well, uh, anyone that manufactures anything right now is, is challenged by their ability to actually have a workforce in place. So if you can give them a set of digital tools where they can monitor remotely and predict in advance of a asset failure, you're giving them really an incredibly powerful tool to manage their assets and deliver their products without disruption or minimal disruption. And, you know, I read something interesting uh, last week and it said, you know, that, that basically, uh, you know, we were looking at both the utility and the industrial sector and, and thinking that digital transformation was going to be three years, uh, a three-year process. And what we've seen in the past two to three months uh, has been absolutely transformative. It's, it's really been a, uh, a real eye-opener that digital technologies are really the path forward. And, you know, obviously you, you saw, I, I think it was my last blog uh, in Liquid Assets uh, at GreenBiz where, you know, I said I was doubling down on digital. And, you know, analog is not completely dead, but it's, it's less of an option going forward. So one final question for you. What advice would you give to the, the teams that are out there <laughs> that are thinking about this, especially given the pandemic and, and looking forward into the future? You know, a couple of recommendations on how they, they get, they, no, no pun intended, they dive into this? Sure. Uh, a few thoughts. One is clearly uh, a commitment to connect to the water technology hubs or accelerators out there that are out in the marketplace that are identifying these innovative digital technology companies and engage with them so you you really understand the the toolkit that is out there and, and some of the tools that are emerging uh, prize competitions are really interesting also uh, as a platform to identify these innovative digital technology solutions uh, and also really be mindful that uh, while we all tend to, myself included, fall in love with technologies. Uh, it really comes down to the, the human side of the equation. So investing in the workforce to understand how to use digital tools, the value of those digital tools is absolutely essential. So it's you know, getting out there and knowing what is available and testing it. Uh, testing those technologies, but also being incredibly mindful and in investing in the workforce uh, side of the equation. Well, thank you, Will, for your time. Take care and stay well. Heather, you, you also. Always great to talk to you and uh, be well. This week, the Textile Exchange launched its latest Material Change Insights report, offering insights into the state of fiber and material sourcing in the textile center in the era of COVID-19. The report's based on a survey of 170 brands, and it analyzes how the industry's 
transitioning to preferred materials, as well as how it's aligning with the sustainable development goals and the transition to a circular economy. Here to talk about the report from Bath, England, is Liesl Truscott, Director of European and Material Strategy at the Textiles Exchange. Hey, Liesl. Hi, Joe. Nice to be here with you today. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks so much, and congratulations on the report. Maybe start with just talking about why you do this report. This is not the first time, right? This has been going on for a while. What's this report about? Yeah, so it's not the first time. We've we've been working with the industry for over 10 years now on, on data reporting. Uh, it certainly has evolved over the years, and last year we did a full review of the of the benchmark and introduced our material change index with the ambition to really accelerate companies' uh, performance and and um, direction towards a more sustainable um, materials portfolio. Well, let's talk about that. So here's what I take away. First of all, more companies are sourcing the raw materials from uh, what you call preferred sources, uh, sustainable and uh, other uh, other attributes. Uh, but their linkage to climate change and circularity, the circular economy, uh, they're talking the talk and a little bit walking the walk, but it's still early days. Is How would you characterize what's going on right now in the textiles industry and as it relates ultimately to the apparel we buy? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And it, it has taken a long time for companies to really get a, a sense of, of how to connect with their raw materials suppliers. It's a long way back in the value chain, as, as, as we've all acknowledged for many years. But um, the understanding and, the, and the, real, the, the real need to connect back to source, understand the, the geographical uh, risks and the and the opportunities, of course, and and really work in more of a, a partnership to sort of de-risk some of some of the big challenges. Uh, really, to share those those risks more equally through the supply chain, and and I think as the as the industry acknowledges its role in addressing climate change, there's an even greater connection back to. Back to the farms, back to the the forests, back to the you know the, the raw material sources to 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 really um, make a make an impact or understand their impact back right back at the start of the the supply chain. So how hard or easy is that becoming? I know it's uh, companies tend to be so many steps away from as you call it, the forest or the field where the raw materials are, are grown or sourced. Um, and often it goes through multiple dealers and brokers and uh, intermediaries before it gets to the factory where it's turned into a garment. Um, how much easier is it to trace back and understand exactly where your particular materials are coming from? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think there's a lot more pressure on companies now to be able to do this, you know, to know where their materials come from, to know their implications and in, in any any issues that, that bubble up. So in terms of risk mitigation, knowing where you're sourcing is, is huge. And then coupled with a lot of advances in the technology that's available now, you know, the, the traceability and, and tracking technology that's available, chain of custody mechanisms, you know, there is more of a, 
of a um, more resources being put into using these tools and technologies to, to sort of track track the way back at least to geographical region and then you know once a company starts to really map its supply chain out and sort of work back through its suppliers to farm or forest and and then can really engage in those conversations um, that they haven't really had access to before and in a way the you know the business model of the time that maybe we're seeing some change now but was really around anonymity you know about there was actually a you know strategic advantage in really not having those relationships cemented and acknowledged and agreed upon but really that ability to 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 swap and change and 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 move around i i i i'm optimistic but i i do think there is um there is that shift happening and 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 it's happening we're seeing the the moral obligation, you know, the the this whole sense of what does re, what does leadership look like now, and and how how is that portrayed, and and what are those, you know, there, there's a hypersensitivity and transparency in the world, um, and, and I think there is a lot of de-risking that that the opportunity to secure supply, you know, to to know that you're you're building a resilient supply chain for the future. And, and I think now that it feels like the future is a lot closer um, through the lens of, of of COVID and 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 that sort of thing that we touch on in the report, I think the companies that have been able to make those connections sort of dive in and then once once what we find is once a company is is in has stepped forward into that space it's a bit like you know ignorance is bliss it's it's very hard to go back once you've started to really connect and engage and and brought your leadership teams and and other colleagues sort of along with you and, and it feels like you know the the journey is, has got to be got to be taken at that point. So yeah. So let's talk about briefly about COVID uh, and how that's affecting this moment in sustainability in textiles and their supply chains. What is the impact? Is it, and is it temporary or is this there's some permanent shift that's happening? And if so, what is that? Yeah, and I, I think this is a subject that's obviously getting everybody's attention, and uh, not least in in supply chains and and in textiles. Um, I think you know we're we're you know you're, we're talking now after a couple of months down the track, and I think you know we're, we're going through those phases of of horror and and fear and you know wanting to retract and and you know that's kind of we've seen that play out a little bit. Um, and then, of course, the once again, this sort of hyper hyper transparency that we're we're living in, and this and this kind of immediate, you know, digital or otherwise connection to people, whether it's it's your direct suppliers, whether it's you know consumers looking in or customers looking in at what you're doing, whether it's your employees that are furloughed at home or 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 holding the fort or. There's a lot of, you know, interconnectivity going on that I think has brought us to, to where we are and and today and and that and of course it will change tomorrow. But I think where we are today is, um, a recognition of of this need for resilience. And I, and I appreciate that's a term that that can be overused. We're not quite sure exactly what it might mean for, 
for for different different people in different contexts. But I think, you know, this 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 idea of of being able to ride out shocks, whether it's economic, whether it's environmental, you know, whether it's it's health, it's it's all coming together. And I think what we'll see is is companies that have that are embracing that opportunity and are looking looking across their various layers of of risk and immediate needs, you know, those immediate needs to to look after immediate concerns and, and keeping afloat and then how to how to work more um more nimbly, you know, w- within what what they can do. I, I think we'll start to see more of that play out and, and that's a that's a really good thing. It is a really good thing. And lots more in this report. It's uh, downloadable from textileexchange.org. Liesl Truscott is the Director of European Material Strategy at the Textile Exchange. Thanks so much, Liesl. Thanks, Joel. Pleasure talking to you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six every week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to find out more about them. And we always love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe and healthy. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in.